Hello and welcome along to another episode of Bear Books Podcast. I'm April Berry. And I'm Daisy Ray. This episode is a flash fiction episode based on the writing prompt Unrepentant. And judging by our inbox, you all have a little bit of a dark side. So thank you to everybody that submitted a story. We have two stories for you today. The first one is called Gip, written by Finbar Ansby. And Finn has joined us on the podcast especially to read his story for us. And the second story is Unrepentant, written by our April Berry. And she will read that one for us herself. So first up then, introducing Finbar Ansby. Finn is a singer-songwriter and is used to writing lyrics, so already has that sort of creative vibe going on. So I suppose writing a flash fiction for us was an obvious next step. Yeah, it's the first time I've heard it as well. So you'll all be listening to it for the first time together. Take it away, Finn. Once upon a time, there was a pig named Gip. Gip! was one cool motherfucking pig. This motherfucker had it all. They were in a band, a successful one. The first album, Brickhouse, was widely renowned as a cult classic. The band had called themselves the Three Little Pigs. It was funny because there were four of them. And also, it was funny because they were all at least six foot tall, and Gaston, their drummer, was six foot seven. Git was the bassist, but also sang and wrote all the lyrics. Paul McCartney, Kate Nash, and Thundercat were all particular inspirations of Gip's. Gip rode a motorcycle. Her name was Shelley. Gip was also a great gardener. Their allotment was filled to the rims with beautifully vivid vegetables of all colours. Bright red tomatoes, crunchy orange carrots, succulent green cucumbers, pink and purple radishes, all the size of your head. Gip gave great advice, was excellent at Sudoku, and was always out and about helping the community. Food banks, youth clubs, you name it. Friends would often say things to Gip like, yo, Gip, damn, you're a good motorcycle rider. Or, wow, Gip, that was one impressive backflip. All the praise was a lot for Gip sometimes, but still, they never forgot to say thank you. However, Gip had a secret. One day in the deep of summer, Cracks of sunshine broke through the blinds and awoke Gip, nice and early. They felt a bit rough, but it was nothing that a cold shower and a microwaved portion of last night's supper couldn't fix. Gip always ate the same meal. They read the morning newspaper and then at around 11am, hopped on Shelley and made their way down to the beach. Once Gip had arrived, they parked up their trusty bike, grabbed their trendy beach bag and went to find a spot. They liked to position themselves middle-ish, not too far from Shelley, but at the same time, not too far from the sea. They pulled their book, Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell, out of that quirky beach bag of theirs, put on their shades and began to relax. Gip spent the whole day there, occasionally nipping into the water for a quick dip. They were an excellent swimmer, of course. As the sun made its way from east to west, they saw all arrays of day-trippers come and go. The dog walkers, the families, the sweet but obnoxious students who were drinking, dancing and seeming to stay a little longer than everyone else. But eventually, the students left too. Gip waited half an hour after everyone was gone before they made their move, just to be sure. Then, when that timer went off on their phone, just like clockwork, 
they packed their stuff back into their unnecessarily fashionable beach bag and headed back up to Shelley. Carefully, Gip slipped the beach bag back into Shelley's saddle bag and retrieved a different bag, a small brown tote bag. They placed this bag around their shoulder. This bag was somehow even trendier than the first one. Then they gave Shelley a little kiss on her handles and trotted back down to the beach. But when Gip arrived at the beach, they kept trotting. Round the corner they went, over the bridge and slowly into the woods. One hoof at a time, they meandered through the trees, making sure not to step on any twigs or sticks that looked especially crunchy. With the grace and dexterity of a ballerina, they slid up and down boulders, hopped over passing streams and ducked under pokey bushes. When Gip arrived at their usual spot, they climbed nimbly up that familiar tree. They always sat on the same long, sturdy branch. As this branch, without a doubt, was the best one for pigs to sit on in occasions such as these. Entirely focused on the job at hand now, Gip pulled out their trusty Barrett's M82, and then as routinely as one may brush their teeth, make a coffee, or butter some toast, bang! Gip, as you can probably imagine, was a superb sniper. They carefully repacked Barrett into their nifty little tote bag and made their way back down the tree. Then, humming a little tune as they went, Gip popped their supper over their back and headed back to the car park. On arrival, they whipped out a bin bag from Shelley's saddle bag, wrapped the wolf up and duct taped it onto the back of their loyal vehicle. You see, everyone knows the story of the three little pigs. Everyone's heard all about how, eventually, the final little pig outsmarted the big bad wolf, capturing him in a big pot of boiling water and eating him for supper. But what everyone conveniently doesn't know about the story of the three little pigs is that the final little pig had a pregnant wife and that the final little pig spent the rest of his life behind bars and that the final little pig's son grew up without a father. Every time they loaded a wolf onto Shelley's back, Gip thought of their great-grandfather, how proud he'd be. And on this particular summer's night, Gip glid round those familiar winding roads, as they so often did, thinking about the violent system that had forced them to take justice into their own hands. Pirouetting through the mountains, Gip's mind's eye was filled with all the wolves unfairly protected, all the lives lost, and all the little pigs growing up without fathers. But as they pulled up into their drive, and carefully undid the duct tape that had expertly harnessed that bastard onto Shelley, as they used their abnormal strength to carry their latest spot of revenge inside, as they slid their scrumptious snack into their trusty pan and admired its water's sterile simmer grow to an elegant boil, Gip felt calm. Alexa, play the last laugh by the three little pigs. was brilliant i can just imagine this pig climbing a tree with a rifle just picking off all the wolves in the wood and the forest taking them home and boiling them for dinner i've never never myself ever thought about what happens at the end of a fairy tale and it's quite the coincidence don't you think that in the last episode we reviewed spinning tales by bray willows and one of the characters in her book was the big bad wolf who really was a bad guy 
And here we are with our flash fiction with the descendant of the three little pigs. We couldn't have planned that better if we'd tried. It's funny. It's got a political edge. It's <laughs> absolutely love it. What inspired it, Finn? <laughs> I, I basically tried to copy another story, but like it just ended up becoming something completely different. Uh, like for this YouTube video of this story about this, it was like a little animation. It was just like a short thing. And it was this man who was really good at everything, but he was like really artistic, but couldn't draw. And it was like a secret. And then this little girl told him, oh, if I give you this magic pen, then you'll be able to draw, but you have to use it every day for a month um, before it starts working. So he draws and he's rubbish every day. And then after a month, he's really good. Then he thinks it's a pen, but it's not. And I just thought that was a really cute story. So I wanted to just do a story as someone was really good at everything. And then it just kind of ended up becoming a bit more sinister. A brilliant imagination and a well-presented story. And you're right, it was it was quite comical. Yeah, we'd love to hear your opinions on this. So you can always join us on our social media. We are Bear Books Pod 1. Or you can email us at bearbookspod1 at gmail.com. Let us know what you think of it. Coming up next, though. Hang on one second. I'm oh. looking forward to some more contribution from Finn. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Finn, you need to do some more writing. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing that with us, Finn. I'm sure our listeners are going to enjoy it hugely. Oh, I hope they do. Uh, thanks for having me on. I feel very, uh, very honoured. So go on then. What's coming up next? <laughs> you are coming up next <laughs> we have your story coming up next your unrepentant that has been written for like ever okay kick back then and have a listen crouching behind a grassy hummock i looked round the landscape squinting in the mid-morning sun i knew what i was looking for i just couldn't see it how did i end up here a 23 year old woman supposed to be in my final year of medical studies, yet here I was, 30 miles from the nearest town, desolate beach to my left, grassy dunes and shrubland to my right. I looked at my watch, tutting as loudly as I dare. Every second counted. It could be the difference between life and death. Allowing myself a rare moment of nostalgia, thinking back four years when I was carefree, late for everything and nonchalantly shrugging off people's comments about my timekeeping, now it was the most important thing in my life. Hearing a rustle to my right, senses heightened. I turned my head and I could see the grass moving like a snake through the desert. As the rustling came closer, I could make out the two grey figures crawling forward in the grass. As they got closer, something told me things were off. There were only supposed to be two people, but I could make out a third body in the grass. I needed to escape. Acting fast, I turned to run parallel to the beach, but in my haste got my coat belt tangled in the handlebars of my bike, which came crashing down on top of me. Looking up, I could see three figures stood in front of me, a British pilot with a bloody nose, swollen eye socket and visible bruises all over his face, flanked by two slightly dishevelled Gestapo officers. In that moment, I knew we had been betrayed. Panic thoughts clouded my mind, has all our covers been blown? Would all members of the resistance cell be arrested? I knew that what followed wouldn't be pleasant, but I'd be trained for this. I was, if I'm honest, in that moment terrified. 
adrenaline coursed through my veins, and after what was only a few seconds, really, I stood up straight to face my fate. Me and the British pilot were dragged across the sand dunes to the road and thrown into the back of a van, completely devoid of windows with the stench of a cattle barn. No doubt previous occupants, knowing what their fate was, had soiled themselves and no one had bothered to clean it out. The vehicle stopped and we were dragged out of the van, pulled down multiple corridors and pushed downstairs, eventually being split up and, for me, violently pushed into a cell. The cell was damp, freezing and the only light came from a bare bulb suspended from the ceiling. I sat down on the floor and took stock of my situation. Thinking back two years when I joined the resistance, I knew the dangers, but my successes along the way had far outweighed the possibility of being caught. Also at 23, I thought I was invincible. However, now I knew I was on my way to meet my maker. I felt strangely calm, very peaceful. All the successful repatriations I had accomplished seemed to give me comfort for the situation I now find myself in. All those young men who had made it back to their families. My questioning went on for what seemed like weeks. Gentle persuasion followed by brutal beatings. But nothing they did to me would make me give up my transport smuggling lines for repatriation of Allied forces. I knew that the pilot was no use to them and was afraid they would kill him. But I couldn't be too concerned as that would bring my guard down and I might slip up. I became quite good at counting time in my head, though it may not have been truly accurate. It felt like I was left alone for a while and I could feel the lacerations and bruises on my face heal. My body also started to repair from the beatings. I did wonder why. Maybe they realised that I was never going to be broken. I heard boots coming down the corridor, keys in the lock and my cell door swung open. I was grabbed by both of my arms out of my cell but this time we turned a different way to the way we went when I was being interrogated. I felt a lump in my throat as I knew what was coming. I was being transported to the concentration camps. The light of the courtyard blinded me, the first time I had seen daylight since the day on the sand dunes. I struggled to focus as we moved across the courtyard like some clumsy three-legged race, stopping in front of a wall. As my eyesight came back to me, I could see that I wasn't being transported. In front of me was a line of people, all holding rifles, and they were pointed at me. I felt the sweat trickle down the back of my neck, I went cold all over, and the initial terror was more than I could bear. I closed my eyes, and as I was waiting for the shots to ring out, a strange calmness washed over me. You've always had a fascination with Auschwitz and that period in history. So it's no great surprise, really, that you've incorporated that into a flash fiction story. It was a time in history when, you know, millions of people lost their lives. Families were disrupted. You know, it was a horrendous time and one that I hope's never going to be repeated. And I think that's possibly why I have got that fascination, because I don't ever want anybody to forget it. And I don't ever want anything like that to happen again. And I, I sometimes as I look at things, events that do happen within the world, I think possi possibly that there's times when we've crept pretty close to that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, I understand what you're saying there. I've had a way of dealing with things in the past in that I switch it off. I don't, I don't always listen to the news. I don't always listen to these stories of what has happened in history and how dark and deep and the struggles that everybody has had. But 
I had a little bit of a change of heart one day in Epiphany, you might say, I guess, that people have lived these lives. They've lived in terror. They've been tortured. People have died. The least I can do is listen to their stories. So what if I'm a little bit uncomfortable? I didn't have to live it, did I? No. One of the, the greatest trips that I've ever taken in my life was a few years ago, which was a trip to, to Krakow, which included a trip to Auschwitz. Did it not break your heart, April? It was absolutely horrendous. The the sort of the chill and the cold and the uh, and I don't I don't really want to use the word terror, but I, I'm going to do and the reverence when you're there as well. When you think about the amount of death that happened, I suppose I am pretty passionate about it. Definitely, yes, it is. Can't think of the word I want to say. It's not entertaining, but it's not information or a lesson because it is a fictional story although it is deeply based in a possible truth and i think one of the reasons why i do want to know so much about that era is i lost my dad when i was 13 my dad was in the army from 1939 right the way through to 1961 so i think what i was trying to do when i got a little bit older was kind of find out maybe a little bit of the life that my father had led it's a massive, massive thing, and it's amazing what a little bit of creative writing can dredge up and make yeah. you think about. Yeah, I'm glad it's made you think. Yeah. Let's move on to what we're doing for next week. We'll leave it there for today. Okay. The next episode sees us back to highlighting and amplifying indie authors. We will have a special guest with us, Nicole Pyland. She is the author of The Misperception, one of many titles she has written, and we are really looking forward to introducing her to you. Just to give a bit of a, the backstory, Misperception is book five in a series of six. And when I had a, a quick look at, at Nicole's website, which is rather good, it's got lots and lots of information on, it does recommend that you actually read these books in order, but obviously in true Bear Books podcast fashion, we just pick book five. So... I did a little bit more research about the characters in books one to six, so it made a little bit more sense to me. And, of course, I had to fill Daisy in earlier on because that's not the sort of thing she researches. She's a lot more nerdy than I am. I just wanted to know the fluffiness behind the books, basically. I kind of have got to eat a bit of humble pie, if I'm honest, because I've always said that sex has no relevance in a book. And what I will say to you is that the sex that's... Uh, I think you're giving too much away. We'll have nothing left to talk about next time. Well, okay, I'll show up then. Let's learn all about the book on the next episode. Yeah, can you see I'm a bit sort of excited for our next episode? You are, aren't you? But save all that excitement for next time. So we will see you next time with Nicole Pyland. Look after each other. Yeah, goodbye, everybody. Stay safe and take care. Thanks for listening. You can follow us on Bear Books and Bear Books Pod 1 on social media. We'd love it if you could share the podcast with your friends. And thanks so much to everyone that's left us a review. If you're listening today and you haven't given us a review yet, please do. It helps other people discover us and their new favourite indie authors. We'll be back soon with more reviews and more flash fiction. See you next time. Mm-hmm.